Tonight's scripture reading uh, will be from the first Psalm, verse 1, beginning. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in, in, the se in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Good afternoon. It's good to be together once again this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity and God's providential care watching over us and blessing us with health that we are able to gather together this Lord's Day. And so as we announced this morning, it is our quarterly uh, question and answer service. And so you guys get to kind of drive where, where we go today um, in terms of the questions that were submitted and uh, am also... Kind of putting myself on a bit of a timer tonight. Just uh, I know we are losing daylight, and so we're going to try to accommodate those who may have some struggles at driving at night. And so we're going to answer, I think, four questions. I think I can get through four tonight. If not, then it'll be three. But uh, we will try to answer these questions. And I'm, of course, always thankful for those who participate in submitting questions. Uh, we always have the slips in the back, I think, that are available for you to jot a question down just in, in the box in the foyer. So I always invite those questions. I didn't push it as much this because I had some several backlog questions I still needed to get to. And so I wanted to try to get to those uh, tonight. And so I didn't do a lot of announcing, hey, I need questions. But now I need questions. So... Uh, for going into next year. So be thinking of your questions, submit them, please, and we'll get to them at our next, uh, next session in March, Lord willing. And so tonight we're going to start with the first question. Why don't we hear and read more about Jesus laughing and smiling? Was he happy? And I thought this was a very interesting question, something that we sometimes don't really contemplate as much as we perhaps uh, should. But you think about the purposes of the Gospels and the Gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I've, I'm convinced that they are intended in their purpose to report a factual and historical representation of Jesus and His life and with any special focus on his teaching, his ministry, and of course his death and his sacrifice and the resurrection. And so you think about that and that this is something akin to a biography. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, it's something that you're reading about someone's life or what might be an even better description that if in terms of genre that the Gospels would fit into would be historio or historiography that is a, a historical biography 
that it's really focused on a historical representation of Jesus and His purpose in coming to this world that is to die for the sins of humanity. So I think whenever we understand that principle about the focus and the purpose of the Gospels, then we probably understand that there's going to be a lot of things that might be left out, especially from an emotional standpoint or just dialogue standpoint uh, that just are kind of outside of the purview there. There's going to be a lot of conversation, personal conversation between Jesus and His apostles that we just don't have. And I can imagine just in uh, myself that Jesus, He came to this earth as a man. And He came to experience all that we experience in terms of He dealt with temptation, He dealt with sadness. We read in John eleven thirty five, the sh- shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He dealt with sorrow, and so we certainly know that He uh, had the wide range of human experience and human emotion. And so it should not surprise us to realize and to even while we don't have specific recording of it, to understand that Jesus laughed. That Jesus enjoyed uh, dialogue with friends and that He wasn't just a stick in the mud or something like that. That He was someone who experienced all of the emotions that we would feel and that we would recognize. Even laughter and joy and happiness. Uh, and it is true that we often think of Jesus as a man of sorrows. That's how Isaiah 53 uh, recognizes Jesus in talking about His death and His sacrifice, that He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so that certainly is in, more in line with what is emphasized in the Gospels because of their purpose in recording Jesus and His death and His purpose to come into the world. But, I think if we read the New Testament correctly, then we're going to see that there are some things that Jesus says that are supposed to be humorous, that are supposed to be funny. And in Matthew chapter 7, for instance, Matthew chapter 7, and in uh, verse 1, perhaps the most misused verse in all of the Bible do not judge so that you will not be judged. That's the verse that people like to quote, and then they, it's like they scratch out the rest, or they tear out the rest, and they just lift verse 1 out of its context. But you continue reading, and Jesus actually is not talking about don't judge, period. He's saying you don't need to judge with a hypocritical kind of judgment. And then He says in verse 3, something that we, if you just imagine like at face value, then it's going to be somewhat humorous. He says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's okay to laugh at that. (laughs) Because Jesus is painting a picture if you just had a little bit of sawdust in your eye, uh, or in someone else's eye, and you're trying to fix that while you have a big old two-by-four coming out of your own eye. That's a pretty funny picture to have in your mind, and that's exactly how Jesus was trying to intend that. When you would go on in verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Later on in Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew chapter 19, and in verse 24, 
when Jesus is warning about riches and the uh, difficulty of being rich, when he says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Just the imagery of a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. Can you imagine that? If that were actually to take place right in front of you, it'd be a pretty humorous attempt, I think. And so, whenever we read Jesus, and when we're reading the New Testament, Jesus uses some things that are supposed to be funny to us, just if we envision it. And it's interesting that in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 7, one of the complaints that comes from Jesus' accusers is that He was not sad enough. In Luke chapter 7, that... It was like if he's, he's not stoic enough or he's not sad enough, he's not just this stone statue here that has no emotion. In fact, he seemed to enjoy life. In Luke chapter 7 and in verse 31, it says, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. And you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now Jesus came having a little bit of some enjoyment with life. And they were, they're accusing him of not being sad enough. And so I find that to be interesting. But then also, if you consider what Jesus says later on in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, and I think this is a very powerful argument here, that when you consider that Jesus is deity, That He is God. And that He came to this earth, God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And then you think about what Jesus says about God. In Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, when Jesus is presenting several different parables here about lost items, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son, and the prodigal son. He tells us in Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Have you ever wondered why there would be joy in heaven? I'll submit to you that it's because God has joy in heaven. The angels, we learn in verse 10, the angels rejoice over someone who repents. And if you follow that through to its logical extent, God expresses happiness and joy, doesn't He? He has that emotion. And that, I think, explains how we are created in the image of God, and that's how we share in joy and happiness. And if Jesus is God, and if He is also man, then He would experience and express joy even today when someone repents. And so I submit to you that Jesus did have joy, that He was happy, and that He is happy even today in heaven. And so I think that was a very good question that enjoyed thinking about some of those things and looking at some of those texts of Scripture and 
I think that was a very helpful kind of way to think about Jesus. And that as we recognize that He came as a man and that He experienced the full fullness of life that we would experience and all the emotions and the things that we have and that we share as well. The second question that I received is, how is it that John the Baptist was Elijah? How is it that John the Baptist was Elijah? In Matthew chapter 11, in Matthew the 11th chapter, I invite you to turn over there with me. Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 14, Jesus has received some questions uh, from John. And then there's some discussion about John's role. And he praises John for his commitment in preaching the gospel and things of that nature. And Jesus does. And in verse 14, Jesus says, And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. And this is referring to, the, in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, there is a prophecy that is made there in Malachi chapter 4, the very last chapter of our Old Testament, and the last couple of verses in our Old Testament. That Jesus is referring to this prophecy made by Malachi in Malachi chapter 4 and in verses 5 and 6. When Malachi says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And Jesus is referring to this prophecy made by Malachi, where Elijah would come and He would prepare the hearts of the people for a restoration prior to the establishment of the Messianic kingdom in the church. And all of this would also take place before the final judgment. And so, if you know your Old Testament history, at least in somewhat of a general way, Elijah has been dead. And he's been gone for a number of years, even at Malachi's time. For several hundred years. And here Malachi is is saying, Elijah the prophet is going to come to you. And in Luke chapter 1, when John's birth was prophesied to his father Zacharias, the angel that came and appeared to him tells him, I think what Jesus intended for us to understand about John. And I think there's something to be said about letting the Bible be its own commentary on itself. When there's a difficult passage of Scripture, go to another passage of Scripture that might help us and let the Bible comment on the Bible itself. Because in Luke chapter 1 and in verse 17, when the angel appears to Zacharias and tells him, he says in verse 17 about John, the child that's going to be born to Zacharias, he says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And he quotes from Malachi chapter 4. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
And I find the words of the angel to be very helpful here. That it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So it's not that John is Elijah reincarnate or something like that. But that John was going to take the spirit and the kind of uh, demeanor that Elijah had. And that he was going to speak with the same kind of force and with the same kind of uh, knowledge and wisdom and power. That was going to be how John was perceived. He was going to be someone who is like Elijah. And so he is going to come in the semblance of Elijah. That he's not going to be Elijah reincarnate or anything like that. So I appreciated that question as well. I found that to be a very interesting question. I had never noticed that statement in Luke chapter 1 that the angel says that he's going to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. But I found that to be a very helpful explanation of what Jesus was trying to convey about John. And in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus also, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus also makes this comment about John whenever he is being transfigured. That you have Moses and Elijah that are there with him. And he's speaking with him. And Jesus, he then comes down from the mountain and His disciples asked Him in verse 10, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize Him, but did to Him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And He was saying, Elijah has come. And that it, He was John. And people missed it. A prophecy that should have been alerting any Jew that was believing and trusting in God's power and His design and plan that this should have been the sign that the Messianic Kingdom and the church is about to come and be established and they missed it. That is what Jesus is conveying. And it says in verse 13, "...then the disciples understood that He had spoken to them about John the Baptist." So I thought that was a very helpful passage of Scripture to help us understand how John is like Elijah in many ways. We see the third question. How did they put stuff in the Ark of the Covenant, including Aaron's rod? I think the background to that question is that if you touched the Ark, then it meant death, didn't it? Because we know the story of Uzzah. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Where he reached out to touch the ark from, to keep it from falling and he was struck down dead. And so how were people able to do that? Putting items in the ark of the covenant. And in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 4, we studied that, I think it was earlier this year, the book of Numbers. And it's a first few chapters of Numbers are exciting. It's exciting reading material. <laughs> uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek because it's probably some of the most tedious uh, things to read in the Old Testament. But in Numbers chapter 4, 
the Lord is giving instruction to Moses about the Levites. And you'll remember that the Levites are the people who help the priests. They're the ones who are... It's the family that the Lord has designated to help and to be a part of the temple service or the tabernacle service at this time. And the different families among the Levites that are given assignments and duties. In, in Numbers chapter 4 and in verse 15, talking about some of the items and the holy objects in the furnishings of the sanctuary. In Numbers chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And so this family, the sons of Kohath, they are the ones who are assigned the task of dealing with some of the objects in the tabernacle. That they are able to touch and handle those things and that they have the permission to do so. And I think that's critical. They have God's permission. They have God's authority to handle some of these items. And that's going to become something that uh, comes up later as we will talk about. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and in verse 2, the, when David is making plans to uh, move the ark, and this is following the incident with Uzzah. And so David has learned at this point. <laughs> He's learned that God is serious when, when He says who is supposed to touch and who is supposed to, how things are supposed to be done. In 1 Chronicles 15 and verse 2, then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to Him forever. And so they have the assignment to carry the ark and that no one else does. And so it's to be transported in the right way. And that's something that we will talk about in a moment. But God certainly must have allowed the Levites, the ones who have permission, the Kohathites, to open the ark and to touch the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat, the lid that is on it, in order to put certain items in there. Because in Numbers chapter 17 and verse 10, the instance with Aaron's rod, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. And so God does authorize items to be put in the Ark of the Covenant. And so there had to be permission for things to be put and placed in there. But I would contend that it had to be done in the right way by the right people to do so in an authorized way. And then there's that instance with poor old Uzzah, right? In 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I think I do, my heart does kind of go out to Uzzah because 
perhaps his intentions were good. I think there could also be an argument to be made that his intentions weren't as noble as sometimes we might think or we like to think. But certainly, I do put a lot of blame on David in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Because David, he thought he had this wonderful idea to transport the Ark of the Covenant. That let's transport this and bring this back to Jerusalem. And it had not been there for many years at this point. So he wants, David wants to do things that would be uh, God honoring. And yet, what he does is he builds an ox cart for the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 2, it says, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Bel Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the Ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzzah and Ohio. The sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. And so we're introduced to Abinadab where the Ark of the Covenant has been. We're introduced to Uzzah there, the son of Abinadab. And it says in verse 4, So they brought it with the Ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the Ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir, wood, and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And so I just want you to see what is going on up to this point. The Ark had been in Uzzah's father's house. The Ark was being carted, not carried, as was supposed to occur. And then you continue reading in verse 6, but when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And here's Uzzah. It seems like this ark is about to topple over, and so he reaches out and he wants to save the ark, right? But in that moment of disobedience because he was not a Levite. He was not of the Kohathites. He had no business handling the ark of God and touching it and carrying it or anything of that nature. It says, The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence and he died there by the ark of God. And it's there in verse 7 that I think we learned something about Uzzah. In this moment of disobedience, what the Holy Spirit says is that he was irreverent. When we don't do things the way God has told us to do it, it's not a, an act of reverence, even if we have the best of intentions. It is irreverence. Our disobedience is irreverent before God. If we want to try to introduce some newfangled way of worshiping God, 
We might think, well, hey, this is really new. It's really exciting. It's really going to be good. But if it's not authorized, if we don't have authority for it from the Word of God, it's irreverent and it's disobedient. And it does not bring glory to God. What brings glory to God is doing things the way God wants them to be done. And I can't help but wonder here, when Uzzah is reaching out and trying to save the ark from toppling over, why did he do that? Maybe, it, maybe you could say, well, he, was, he had an extreme amount of reverence for God that he really wanted to not see the ark topple over, or maybe, just maybe, think about where that thing has been for a while. It's been in his father's house. Does he think of it as just an important piece of furniture that has like a family heirloom that he thinks, oh, I need to save, save the china, you know, kind of thing. Don't want the china to break. Does he think of that he has ownership or possession of it in some way? Perhaps that's why the Bible comments that it was an act of irreverence here. And it says David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that, is, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and that stays there for another three months or so. And so there was great peril that occurred here. There are several of those elements that we have touched on that I think give us pause and some consideration here into what occurred. And is interesting background information to, to say the least. And so whenever we do things in worship, it needs to be by God's authority. If we don't have authority for it, we don't have permission to do it, and we should not do it. David had to learn that lesson. Uzzah had to learn that lesson as well. And we need to learn it too. Final question that we're going to try to talk about and address tonight is can you talk about the switch from B.C. to A.D. and the time frames that occurred between the Testaments? If that wasn't how you intended your question, that's how I took it. So what kind of occurs between the Old and the New Testament? So that's what I'm going to answer. If I did not answer your question the way you wanted me to, then come back and talk to me about it and we can address it uh, another time. But at the close of the Old Testament, approximately 440 B.C., depending on how you might date some things, but um, I'm not a big fan of that date myself, but if just kind of depending on how you date some things, uh, the Babylonian Empire has dwindled and it has been removed, and the Medo-Persian Empire is in place. So those are some of the events that close out the Old Testament then. And so by the time the New Testament begins, approximately 400 years have gone by. And then you have the Roman Empire that has come into power. 
And if you just don't know anything about world history, you might just think, well, okay, so we went from the Medes and the Persians to the Roman Empire. Well, that's not how world history has been written. <laughs> uh, because there's this guy, maybe you've heard of him, his name is Alexander the Great. Uh, he, is, he, he was the son of Philip from Macedon and Macedonia. And he conquered like a lot of the, the known world at that time. Just, you know, he was a nobody. Like by the time he was 32. But after he got to India and conquered there, he died pretty soon afterwards. And his kingdom was then split into four regions to be ruled by his four generals. And so you have the Ptolemaic kingdom which was down in Egypt in, in the south part. You have the Seleucid kingdom, Mesopotamia, the east, Syria, those kinds of places, uh, north of Israel there. And Egypt, of course, being south of Israel, that's going to be important from a geographical standpoint. You have the Pergamon kingdom uh, that involved Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And then you have the Macedonian kingdom or Greece that was kind of... Uh, how they split the kingdom there to be ruled by the four generals. And at this point, the Greek Empire, it's, it's been split up, and so it certainly was probably not going to be the way that Alexander would have ruled that kingdom. But during the Greek Empire, Israel was a constant battleground. So I wish I had thought to put a map up here, but if you have Egypt down here and then you have uh, the Seleucid king uh, in Syria and everything up here, right here in the middle is Israel and Palestine. And so if you would imagine as kingdoms and nations oftentimes do, there's going to be war and conflict and there's going to be times where this kingdom is doing well and this kingdom is doing poorly or where this kingdom is doing well and this kingdom is doing poorly. And in those times of conflict, they're going to be traveling through and coming down and fighting and waging war, traveling up and waging war. And so guess where they're going through all the time? Israel. And so guess who becomes the... Uh, who's, who's in this game that against everyone's will, that they're just kind of in between and they're just going to be affected by everything. Israel. And eventually the Seleucids uh, gained control over Israel and the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes IV came through Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple. That's the very short version of this. But he came through and he desecrates the temple and what seems to have been the 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 nail in the coffin, so to speak, was he goes into the temple and he takes a pig and he kills the pig in the temple. That may not seem like a huge thing to us, but if you think of a pig as an unclean animal, that would have been an unholy thing to do in the temple. That would have been about the most offensive thing you could do to a Jew in their temple. And so you have Antiochus Epiphanes doing that, and this eventually led Israel to rebel in what is called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt began with a man named Matthias Hasmoneus, 
who was an elderly priest who refused to abandon Judaism, that Antiochus Epiphanes was trying to require that you have to give up your Judaism, you have to become a Greek, basically. You have to adopt the Greek lifestyle. And so you can't have this temple, you can't have your religion, you have to become a Greek. And Matthias, he refuses. And he actually kills the king's messenger that came to enforce the priest, the Matthias, to give up Judaism. And all of this is occurring at about 167 B.C. And Matthias' sons, John, Simon, Judas, Eleazar, and Jonathan, they all flee for safety. And it's Judas who was appointed as the military leader. And he earns the nickname Judas Maccabee. I love it because it means the hammer. I think that's a really cool nickname. If you want to give me a nickname, you can call me Sean the Hammer. I like that. But Judas, he began leading a guerrilla-type warfare during this time. And in December of 164 B.C., the Maccabees took back the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and gave a, a, a very strong victory for, for the Jews during this time. And the temple was cleansed at that point, and the lamps were relit. And perhaps if you know a little bit about the feast, uh, the Feast of Dedication, or what we would probably call today Hanukkah, that's why the Jews celebrate it. It's because of these events that were taking place. And in fact, I, I like to always point this out in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 10, and in verse 22, Jesus himself celebrated Hanukkah. In John chapter 10 and verse 22, it says, At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, December, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And so you have Hanukkah being actually mentioned in the New Testament. And this allowed the Jews to rule themselves for nearly 100 years until the Roman influence came to Palestine and the Roman Empire uh, just said we're taking charge here. Um, and so Rome is kind of the, in the background in all of this as well because they are growing in power and they want Egypt to be decimated. They want Syria to be decimated and as long as there's this guerrilla warfare that's going on in the Israel and that they're doing well and kind of fighting off everyone. Rome is just able to be to prop themselves up and grow in power, and they were okay with that. And so, uh, that's the the very short and condensed about five or seven minute answer to what takes place between the Old and the New Testament from B.C. to A.D. And so you have Jesus coming on the scene right uh, at the time that the Roman Empire begins to become an empire and you have uh, Claudius and his rule there. So, but Those are the questions that we had for this evening. I appreciate all of the questions that we received uh, and always enjoy these opportunities to kind of get into what is an interest to you. And so as I mentioned at the beginning, if you have questions write them down, put them in our question and answer box, 
and we will uh, get to them eventually. And so I think I'm about out. I think I have maybe one or two more that I'll have to answer next time. And so I appreciate your good attention and the good questions that we received. Know that we have not focused tonight on what we need to do to become a Christian. But we don't want to leave here tonight without giving you an opportunity to become a child of God. Tonight, if you have never rendered obedience to the gospel, we want to encourage you to do that. By believing in Jesus as God's Son who came here to die for you, if you would repent of your sins, be baptized in water to become a child of God, we have no greater joy than to help you do that tonight. Maybe that you're here tonight, though, and you have made that commitment in, to walk with Christ and to be His child, that you've been baptized and have your sins washed away. But maybe you've not been living right. Maybe you've turned away from the Lord. Tonight, well, I've gotten to be put on the spot tonight and be asked questions. Now it's your turn. Because we're all going to stand before the Lord in judgment. We're about to sing the song, What Will Your Answer Be? What will you say when you're before the Lord in judgment? Will you have Christ on your side being your mediator, being your advocate, and being your defense? Or will you have rejected him and refused to follow him? Don't leave here tonight without choosing to follow Jesus. What will your answer be? If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?